Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today on the banks of Derwentwater, looking out over the grand panorama of Catbells, Causey Pike, the Northwestern Fells with author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. <laughs> well, we're back together again in an absolutely mesmerising setting. I mean to say, you know the number of people who have come to Keswick to revere this setting. And I'm sure many of our listeners will be with us with the joy of that scene. There's a strong breeze coming off the lake. Uh, there's clouds swirling in the jaws of Borrowdale. There's a wonderful light playing off the fells, isn't there? And the clouds just weaving in and out of the fell tops. And we're here today, Mark, at Friars Crag, where we've actually been on Country Stride before. It's uh, an important National Trust property, and it celebrates the life not only of Ruskin, who we were talking about briefly on that occasion, but also Canon Hardwick Rawnsley. Now, Rawnsley died 100 years ago this year. Yeah, in May 1920. And like Ruskin, he is one of the titanic figures of Lakeland history, uh, and in fact, English history as well, I'd say. Uh, He's somebody I've got far too tenuous a knowledge of. Probably he's best known up here for his key role in founding the National Trust, which of course also has an anniversary this year, 125 years old. So two huge, important anniversaries, both centered around this remarkable figure whose story we will cover in length in today's Country Stride. Indeed, we have with us today Stephen Matthews from Carlisle, who has studied this man in great detail. Now, we should also say about Steve, Steve is also a major character in Lakeland life, isn't he? He runs the Bookends Bookshop in Carlisle. Yeah, it's it's the the Emporium of Knowledge, great galleon ship of a shop. 300,000 books it's quoted on the website. I'm sure there's more. And he's also, him and his wife are also instrumental in Cumbria's book festival as well. Uh, Borderlines Book Festival. That's right. So very important people in Cumbrian publishing and book selling. Indeed. And we're on the shores of Derwentwater at this moment, but he's waiting for us at St Kentigan's Church at Crosswaite at the far end of the town. So we'll head off now. Well, I'm in the churchyard of St Kentigan's Crosswaite in Keswick with a great surround of mature trees in the churchyard. Partially mown, partially being mown. I can hear a mobile sit-on lawnmower in the background. And through a little gap in the trees, I can just see Barrow leading up towards Cragfell. And we're in the midst of an amphitheatre of great mountains, a thrilling setting that so many people come to Keswick to admire and are inspired by. Now, I'm in the company of somebody else who inspires me and inspires many people who have a great affection for the cultural traditions of Cumbria 
delighted to welcome Stephen Matthews. Oh, hello, Mark. And Stephen, it's great to see you. You're a man from Wales, I believe. Yes, um, I don't know how I've ended up here. <laughs> that's the way it goes. And I mean, when you come to a place, you just get interested, or I do, interested and involved in it. You want to understand it and know it. And that's partly how I come to be looking at Rawnsley, because he was a man who did something of the same, much more of the same, in coming from Lincolnshire. He found his spiritual home in the lakes and really found historical roots for everything he became in the kind of life he led up here. So it's really fitting we should be here, standing by his gravestone. Well, we're standing by the grave, which has echoes of Ruskin's grave with his Celtic entwined foils and cross, very ancient feel to it. And below it, uh, the first instance is his wife Edith, a humble follower of Christ, a love of the good, the beautiful, the true, entered the fuller life 31st of December 1916. Under that, Hardwick Drummond Rawnsley, 28th of May 1920, a helper of his time, canon of Carlisle, chaplain to the king, and 34 years vicar of this parish. So, Steve, what inspires you to be engaged with this particular man? Well, most people see him, first of all, in relation to the National Trust, or they see him as the vicar here. I see him as a bookseller through his books, and remarkably, he instigated a different way of writing about the lakes. Uh, before his time, there'd been the usual historical accounts and descriptions, and there'd been the wealth of guidebooks all telling you what you should do when you came here. But he was among the first to start writing that descriptive essay about his surroundings, um, either just the landscape descriptions or more frequently about um, the people he met and talking to them and so on, and also about writing about the traditions of the area and very much the folk traditions, whether it's meats for the sheep or whether it's the wrestling in the area or grassmere sports or the rush bearing and so on. So he was a man that wrote and described a place. He published a dozen books on um, the area, which makes him amongst the most prolific of Cumbrian writers. And they're all interested, entertaining, engaged with the people, with the landscape. Well, I think we'll leave this particular setting and explore a little bit more as we wander through towards Keswick itself and on towards Friars Crag. Let's just say, though, he was a man that began with failure and we can talk about how he failed and then succeeded, which would be interesting. We just come out of the churchyard. We, looking up to my right, I got a wonderful view of cat bells, the Skelgill Bank, and behind Maiden Moor. Despite the wonderful surround of trees, that we are certainly in the midst of great mountains. And in the background, I can hear youngsters at Keswick School, Lathwaite, on the playing fields up there. They're very noisy, uh, which takes us back, in a sense, back to uh, Rawns's roots. He came from Lincolnshire, I believe. Yes, quite the opposite, the flat country on the edge of the Lincolnshire Wolds. The tales are very much of a lad that was very much a country boy, talking, mixing with the ordinary people of a comparatively poor parish, fishing and wandering the fields and so on. And his first passion was natural history, so much so that when he went to Oxford, he did part 
two of the natural history tripos. Before then, though, he went to Uppingham School, and that was a significant aspect of his development. Uppingham was shaped by one of the great Victorian educationalists, Edward Thring. And Thring was very much for the individual, letting them develop their own particular talents. He felt that every boy had something personal and individual to, to offer. And that became a crucial part of Rawnsley's philosophy. In Oxford, he wasn't successful. He got a respectable third, which means a fail as far as <laughs> Oxford's concerned, in the classics, tripos, and in natural history. But one very significant thing took place. He got involved with Ruskin. Ruskin was the big star of Oxford in those days, in uh, 1870 and so on. And perhaps the most symptomatic involvement was the Hinkley Road project, a mad scheme. Ruskin had this idea that somehow this isolated little suburb of Oxford where the poor people lived should have easier access to the centre rather than going a circuitous route round. And so he got a group of students, a remarkable group of students. Can you imagine Oscar Wilde digging ditches? But Ruskin had Oscar Wilde and he had Collingwood and quite a few people that have still known today in his group of 40 or so that went during the winter months and actually started digging the uh, preparations for a road to go into Oxford. It was abandoned. R Ruskin went off anyway. <laughs> he didn't get his hands dirty. Were, but it was the philosophy that counted. He was a grafter, because that's what yeah. digging ditches is yes. all about. It's about getting your hands dirty, doing things, being physically involved. It was the work of the hands that counted. And that idea of the work of the hands was a thought, an idea, that stayed with Ronsley throughout his life, through his involvement in the arts and crafts movement, through the Keswick School of Industrial Arts, and so many other things that he did. Fabulous. Isn't it fabulous? I think, interestingly, inspired by the Hinkley Road experience, he went to London to work in a deprived parish, very much as a clergyman, and he threw himself into the work, getting involved in all sorts of social aspects, boys' clubs, visiting the poor and helping them and so on. And he was also connected with Octavia Hill. Octavia Hill was one of the three founders, along with Ronsley and Hills, of the National Trust 20 or 30 years later. But at this time, he met her for the first time. She had a housing project in which she was trying to provide housing for the poor, and Ronsley got himself involved in collecting rents and so on. But within a few weeks of being there, he found himself overworked and needing to escape and take a rest. So here we have a picture which I think becomes symptomatic of his later life, of really getting himself hugely energetically involved in a project, often one of great social commitment, absolutely exhausting himself, and then having to retreat from the project to find rest of some sort. And that rest brought him up to the lakes. Thring, his headmaster, felt it would be useful to introduce him to Wordsworth, and he fell in love with Wordsworth and that relationship of the person with the landscape. And he also fell in love with Edith, who was to be his future wife. Edith and her elder sister Alice cultivated the arts, were themselves Ruskinians. Rawnsley found himself staying there for a few weeks in the summer, fell in love with Edith, and the rest, as they say, is history. <laughs> So his visits up here were instigated by the breakdowns he had. I hesitate to say that. I mean, the pattern of his life looks very much of some sort of hypermanic personality, this huge amount of energy followed by bouts of severe depression. And what we see throughout his life is 
that he took long holidays to Switzerland, even to Egypt and so on. There's talks of illness, but characteristically of Victorian ways, there's no identification of it. There's little direct reference whatsoever. So we shouldn't read too much into it, but you could envisage a scenario where here is somebody that finds a degree of comfort in the face of his depression in the landscape of the lakes, in the kind of life he was able to lead here. So this is a man who was active as a clergyman in London, who came to the Lake District, as many people do today, for respite, who then makes his next change in his life. He moves to Bristol. Yes, he only went for a year. And I think it's part of that kind of ambition to do good, to do something, to be involved because he couldn't see a clear career in front of him. And Thring prompted him to join the Cliff College Mission, which was a new evangelical movement in Bristol, where the public school was reaching out to the poor developing suburbs of the city. And Rawnsley went there very much to get engaged as a muscular Christian, being involved with the people, getting involved with the creating a youth club in the area. He used to take these poor boys throughout South Wales and the South West on weekends and things like that. And it was very much, not words, but action, doing things. But he also got involved in other things, like St Werberg's church. There was a plan in building a road to knock down this medieval church. Rawnsley was responsible for a campaign that recited the church tower. Now that seems very interesting, age 22, 23. Here he was getting involved in preserving monuments, getting involved with people being made active, spending their life doing useful things. This was a practical, hands-on person and he got his real first taste of being involved in this sort of thing when he was in Bristol. But again, there is that same story of mental fatigue, of him coming up north again, and again, it's not said clearly, getting the sack. He'd done something wrong, perhaps over-involved, perhaps a mental fatigue, but he was dismissed from the parish. He also, at this time in October of that year, which would be 1878, proposed to Edith Rawnsley. He suddenly left Bristol for a day, went to Westwood Hall, and uh, right on the Devon coast, proposed to her, then went back to Bristol, and within three months or so, he was married, he was installed as a clergyman, and he came up to the peaceful parish of Ray on the shores of Windermere, and he had found his vocation. We find Ronsley at Ray Parish, and I think we'll stride on a little bit further and see where we stand from there. Oh, this is just a little bit off the main street, High Hill, I notice. And we're beside the River Greta, and facing onto the road is this remarkable building, which was the Keswick School of Industrial Arts, and it's quite a handsome building. Slate, of course, local uh, Honester Slate. It's got what looks like a spinning gallery, and was very much influenced by Edith and Hardwick Rawnsley in its origins. And I'm sure many people who come here are pretty unaware of its significance. Well, I think we need to go back to that muscular Christianity of Rawnsley's. When he was in Ray, 
He felt the people needed to have something to do in the long winter nights. He was also influenced by Wordsworth's view that a lot of the ancient skills and crafts, the spinning and woodworking and so on, had been lost by industrial progress. And Ruskin was living nearby. Ruskin, who was mentally ill for much of the time, but nevertheless they were able to visit him and he was a constant inspiration to them. And so Edith and Hardwick started these classes in handicrafts in Ray. When they moved to Keswick, they found themselves more deeply involved. And within a year or two, they initiated the Keswick School of Industrial Arts. That seems a real ambition. They wanted the workmen, especially the workmen, to have something to do in the winter evenings when there were fewer tourists around and when they felt perhaps they were in danger of becoming drunk and so on. It was moral reform, it was personal reform, it was trying to also have respect for the skills that they felt, Thring's idea, everyone should have. And so they started with... Uh, metalwork, repousse work, which Edith had learnt uh, some time before. Not a traditional Lake District activity, of course, but with woodwork and with weaving. And so it became a very significant venture. 60 people at first, then 120, 150 people involved, began in the parish rooms and then moved to this new building, which had been built about 1890. And it shows how significant it had become that... They held a national competition for the design of the building. The building is done very much in an arts and crafts style and has this throwback idea, for instance, of the spinning gallery, which hadn't been incorporated in the Lake District House for years and years before, but was there as a statement of the life that it represented, of the traditions that it represented. On the front of the building, they had a quotation from Robert Browning, which shows that particular kind of respect that Ronsley had. The loving eye and skilful hand shall work with joy and bless the land. That ties together very much Christian message about blessing the land, about the importance of work and quality work and about the relationship of the individual with his skill and his patience and his love in creating objects. Very central message of late Victorian times. And Rawnsley was deeply imbued, well, Edith as well, because she ended up being the person that organised and managed the business, while Rawnsley was very much its publicist, going round the country, speaking about it, virtually selling the wares, so to speak. <laughs> but you, we can see its effect everywhere in the area, in the um, some of the furnishings in the church, in certain copper lampshades you see around the place, and also in wonderfully crafted metal dishes and jugs and houseware of various sorts that are still found around the place. So this became influential socially and artistically in the area, and underlying it all was very much that respect learned from Ruskin about the aesthetic abilities of everybody and the importance of aesthetic values in their lives. Quality never goes out of fashion and he, his values were carried on from Ruskin. He wasn't a philosopher, he wasn't an originator of ideas, but he was somebody that sensed the importance of them. And then his great attribute was the publicity he could persuade people better than anyone, I fancy. He could enthuse about things. And he loved to travel and speak to wide audiences and so on and spread a message. He was the perfect clergyman in one way. The actual origins of his uh, 
fascination in this, what became this industrial arts, has its roots and at his time when he was at Ray. Can you explain some of the things he did when he was there? Well, he went to the quietest of all country parishes, that's important to say, and he went for recuperative reasons. His cousin owned a large mock Gothic castle there, and he supposedly would have had a very pleasant time, but he threw himself into such life of the parish as there was, got himself involved with the local people, um, reintroduced a harvest festival, not just an ordinary harvest festival. He had them march through the village with their scythes and hoes and so on, and created what he saw as a revived tradition. And that idea of the traditions of an area and reviving them was something that persisted with him. So he was a man that relished the country traditions, didn't want to see them lost, and did what he could to promote them. He was disturbed that they were becoming commercialised. One little incidental thing, for instance, is that he was very unhappy at the prizes, huge prizes, 250 guineas, that we've been giving us for wrestling matches. He wanted the old tradition, the manly tradition, the way of life as it was, untouched by what he saw as the corruption of late Victorian commercialism. He was fighting a rearguard action with a community very much removed from the mainstream. And of course he was a, a family man with Edith, uh, and he had a son, I believe. Yes, um, Edith and Hardwick had a very close relationship, I think. She was definitely his helpmate, as it says on the gravestone. And they were closely involved in the life of the parish and all these semi-secular activities he had. They did have one son, Noel. Now, I can find very little out about Noel. How important was he in their lives? Can't really tell. It's very interesting that in the biography written by Hardwick's second wife just in the last two or three years of his life after Edith's death, there is scarcely any mention of the son. His birth is mentioned but with no detail, no other reference than simply that he was born. And then, during the First World War, when he served at the front, she mentions, just in passing again, that um, he was serving on the front. Otherwise, there is absolutely no mention, and there's no mention in any of Rawnsley's writings of his having a son. The little information that emerges in family anecdotes seems to suggest that they were very distant parents. They didn't always take him on holiday, on their numerous holidays with them, and they were often going to Switzerland or Egypt or whatever. A very miserable Noel was sent um, to rugby school when he was 13 and seems to have been very unhappy there. He seems to have been a very distant, difficult child. There's one story told of him returning home for the summer holidays, wanting to go and camp by himself on an island in Derwent Water, <laughs> wanting to get himself away from the family, and his father, with his typical insouciance, being prepared to take visitors along to point out his shy, reserved son as he was camping on the island. There seems to have been a degree of insensitivity on Ronsley's part, which doesn't surprise me. In later years, they talk of the son visiting the vicarage and of arguments taking place constantly between father and son. Cruel, isn't it? Cruel. So, very little information to go on, but I wonder how good a parent Ronsley actually was. If you were to throw yourself back to that moment when he was here and uh, you, you walked into a pub and there he was, what sort of person, how would he have greeted you? 
I think he would have overwhelmed you. He seems to have been that kind of person. He, he had to be the centre of attention. He did go into the pubs. That was part of his mission, to talk to people, to meet to pe people and engage. And he engaged with everyone, from the peasant who he'd visit in their home and sh share a cup of tea with, to going out otter hunting in the early morning or going to see the ravens on Skiddaw. He loved being with the ordinary people, being at the shepherd's meets and all the rest of it. He founded so many things, a beekeeper's society. He'd lecture on hygiene when he came here to everyone. He liked to march in front of the um, May Day processions. The young girl would be on the horse. He'd be leading it. <laughs> Interesting in the whole thing was his enthusiasm for bonfires. Enthusiasm is a key word for him. Not only did he have to have a bonfire on the top of Skiddaw for Queen Victoria's Jubilee, but he enjoyed it so much that next year he had one for the tercentenary of the Spanish Armada. <laughs> and he kept having bonfires and he became secretary or chairman of the National Bonfires Commission <laughs> to organise bonfires. And it's one of his proudest moments was standing on the top of Skiddaw on one of the bonfire nights and looking out and being able to count 143 bonfires on the skyline, all of which he'd been instrumental in starting. But also he was a man of the people because at the bonfire they picked him up and carried him round on their shoulders <laughs> and he loved that, I'm sure. Oh, so God. you can see this larger than life, hugely public, spirited man with a I suppose, a fantastically resonant voice that had to be the centre of attention wherever he went. I'm yes. sure of that. Well, that was absolutely riveting. We'll leave this moment where we're beside the a section of the Cumbria Way, which leads through to Port in Scale. Skidder itself, sadly, is wreathed in cloud. I just see Dodd, and just as a bit of glimmer of light upon Kin to our west. Uh, but um, I think we need to move on a little bit further because the story has still got more to go. We've come round into Crow Park with this absolutely staggering view. There's gulls swinging around, there's people coming in and out, loving the setting and looking out onto the lake and there's people paddling there. And the backdrop, of course, cat bells and maiden moor, swirling mists upon knitting halls on high spy and over to my right a little is Rowling End and the top of Quarty Pike is lost in a little cap of cloud. But just below it, there's Four Park, a mass of trees on the western side of the bay. And behind me, I can just see the bare top of Latrig. Now, Four Park and Latrig play into Rawns's commitment to the community and their access to this place. Can you give us a little bit of a story there, Steve? I think in some ways it was the cause he was waiting for. <laughs> Mrs Spencer Bell had determined to close the path that ran along the west side of the lake beneath Cat Bells. It's been an ancient path, an old pack horse route and so on, and she just closed it. So Rawnsley revived the Keswick Footpaths Preservation Society and um, he had a campaign. And it wasn't just a local campaign, it was national, it got headlines in the Times and so on. And a court case followed as a result of um, physical demonstrations in the area and public trespass and so on. Rawnsley never got involved in any of that kind of action directly, but he was responsible for publicising it and the society won their case in court. And then the other thing 
was over on Latrick. The Speddings owned the land and um, they wanted to close it for agricultural purposes and so on. And again, Rawnsley led the campaign, making a great deal of fuss about it, national attention, and it got to the courts in Carlisle where a compromise was reached. But most interestingly, again, when this put tar barrels by the gates and when the crowd of 2,000 marched along singing Rule Britannia, Rawnsley was not there. <laughs> it was his mate Jenkinson, who he wrote the guidebook with, who led the actual physical walk. But it wouldn't have happened without Rawnsley, and he was a clergyman and he had to behave himself. <laughs> Read it as you want, but yeah. two of the symptomatic things in the whole process by which Rawnsley was a significant leader in the cause of conservation and had been from his earliest days when he was in Ray, when he got himself uh, involved with the footpath that was going to be closed up to Stockgill Force and he was angry that they were going to create a beer garden there. When he fought against the railway line that was to go across to the west coast, when, interestingly, he caused the railway line that was proposed to run from the top of Borrowdale through to Braithwaite and was already planned not to happen. He stopped it by his campaigning. Fortunately, because he would have been on a house just above it four or five years later. <laughs> so he was there involved, Thirlmere discussions. Manchester Corporation wanted to pick a vast, vast reservoir at Thirlmere. Rawnsley was part of the group that fought against it initially, much to the annoyance of lots of Lake District people who saw commercial advantages in what was taking place. And the result was that the reservoir was built, but on a far smaller scale and uh, attractive scale, I think we have to reasonably agree, it is today. It was later on that he reactivated his contact with Octavia Hill and so on, directly in concern with the National Trust. In the 1890s, several properties in the lakes came up for sale, Lador Falls and Grasmere, and he wanted to do something about it. And he caught the mood of the time, I think. There'd been a conservancy movement throughout the country. He knew um, a lady in North Wales that was ready to donate a parcel of land at Harlech. And through that, the idea of the National Trust itself grew so that they acquired the Harlech property and then they acquired the properties in the Lake District. And then in later years, he fought very specific campaigns. So there was Gowbarrow, for instance, where he raised something like £6,500 in a matter of weeks, the equivalent of almost a million pounds today. So he was a huge campaigner, money raising new people influenced them bombarded them with his opinions Absolutely. and i suspect you could never say no to canon ronsley and success rode on success i think so he was lifetime secretary so that would have been what 25 27 years of the national trust and a lot of its character and approach was determined i think by ronsley he had a vision of the lake district landscape it was an outdoor place for contemplation, for that sense of spiritual refreshment and regeneration. And I think that's something that, for many years, has characterised the National Trust. It's quiet, it's peaceable, it's very distinctly middle class in its approach of what it sees as the values in the landscape. And I think Rawnsley's stamp is on it in that kind of attitude. Given that context, what do you think he would have thought of the kind of Lake District we witness today? Well, he wouldn't have liked the wild campers who leave their litter behind. I think if he saw the modern world, he'd be pleased that it was preserved 
in its comparative quietness and that a large number of people, as we can see standing here, come here for essentially physical and spiritual restoration. They do, don't they? I they mean, genuinely it's, do. It's, yes. and, and he would have appreciated the very busyness of the tourism. He'd like the fact that ordinary, everyday people were coming here and enjoying the landscape in the way they do. Well, it's been fascinating to just stand here and listen to you, Steve. Uh, I think we'll move around from Crow Park now and head for Friars Crag, which I think is a focal point for anybody who wants to understand Rawnsley. Well, we've stepped onto Friars Crag, which still attracts the crowds to this day. It's a magic setting. We've come up into a little bit of meadow just to the east of the point, where you can see Walla Crag. And just before we got to this key point, we went past a slab, an inscription that links Rawnsley very much with uh, his connection with the National Trust and his legacy. And we're really coming to the the latter stages of the Rawnsley story, his life. Yes, the latter stages of his life. He became eminent, he became um, King's Chaplain, which was obviously a very distinguished role. He didn't seek higher roles within the church, so he remained the Vicar of Crosswaite, which was the role he always wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, in the latter years, I think they were afflicted, he and Edith were afflicted by ill health um, and their industry falls off somewhat in the 1910s, perhaps inevitably with the First World War. Um, Edith died in 1916. They bought a cottage at Grasmere and then for the final two or three years they bought Allen Bank, Wordsworth's old house down there. But Edith died sadly in a sort of way. Uh, She was in Keswick, he was in, in Carlisle and he was ill. And so he neither attended, he was there at her death, there at the funeral, nor at the sort of dedication of a gravestone and so on. How sad. So that, it, it, sad. it was a kind of separation, because they'd been, I think, incredibly close throughout their lives, and she was as much part of the Rawnsley story as he was, I think, in many ways. Rather like Wordsworth and Dorothy Wordsworth. They very closely shared their tastes and sympathies. Mm. I think they drew inspiration from each other. Mm. So she was extra special, and it is peculiarly sad. For years... His secretary had been um, Eleanor, who later became his wife for the last two or three years. She had been a close friend of both of them and had been very, very supportive in all his campaigning and so on. So it was almost a natural alliance that in his latter years the companionship that she offered um, should result in the pair of them becoming husband and wife. And for the last two years after he retired, they moved to Allen Bank, where very appropriately, in Wordsworth's old house, well, he was only there for a year or two, but nevertheless, one of the great literary houses of the Lake District, uh, Ronsley spent his last two years, and Eleanor carried on living there for another, I don't know, 30 or 40 years. Interesting how uh, she hardly ever mentions his literary output, but of course there was considerable about writing in his life. Yes, it's, uh, it's one of the oddities. Um, Ronsley didn't, <laughs> incredibly, for such an egotistic man, write an autobiography. But um, he may have had a role to play in Eleanor writing his biography a year or two after his death. Interestingly, 
There is no mention or next to no mention of his own writings in this biography. There's just one mention of the literary associations, a few mentions of the several biographies of other people he wrote, but he wrote 12 books. That's 12 books, more than anyone. Till Wainwright, who didn't write books, he just drew pictures. But uh, <laughs> I know the feeling. <laughs> he wrote 12 books on the Lake District in various aspects of its landscape, its history and its people, with the emphasis very much on people. And they have their key role to play, I think, in the developing sensibility towards landscape over the last two centuries. We can begin with that concept of the sublime that was there in the mid-18th century, the romanticised sensibility that followed the picturesque, with Wordsworth, and then that enthusiasm for the outdoors that gradually developed in the late 19th and throughout the 20th century. And Rawnsley brought a very particular vision, I think, because his was a historical vision in that, as we've talked about, he saw it so often through the eyes of other people. He talked to people about how they'd lived and so on. And the other aspect is he appreciated the life of the ordinary people and how they were shaped by the landscape. So he was very much seeing the Lake District as a native. I know he wasn't a native, but he'd made himself a native. He mixed with people, he got himself involved with people, and he wanted to describe the place, not the landscape, the place he loved of which the landscape and nature and so on was part. uh, There are other legacies that go with Ronsey. Most people will know that uh, Celtic Cross, halfway up Skiddor as you're walking up, and not realise Rawnsley was responsible for it, and it's to a, a family of local shepherds who um, died within a few months of each other, and he had the cross erected to them. Not for any strong reason, except he admired the man. He's put up a little monument to um, Goff. You know the story of Goff that fell off Hellbell in and yes. his dog looked after him for years I'm, on end or whatever, I'm for a few weeks. So, yeah. So he put a little monument up there. He had a monument put up at Brother's Water where Wordsworth parted from his brother for the last time. Oh, yes, time. head of uh, Grisdale. Yeah. He was responsible for um, the erection uh, and raising the funds for Ruskin's monument here. So he wanted to mark the landscape too with People what he things. saw as its inhabited history. That seems to be quite important. Because of course, Newton Rigg was one of his sort of inspirations. He couldn't keep his nose out of anything. <laughs> he was an engaged man, so he was on the county council. He became an alderman. He was responsible for roads and bridges for a time. He got himself involved in huge arguments to preserve the Porting Scale Bridge when they wanted to replace it with a concrete structure. Um, he was one of the key players in raising the money and getting Newton Rigg agricultural college organised. He was one of the driving forces behind the Blencathra Isolation Hospital. In the last years of his life, he was chairman of a campaign to beautify Carlisle. He just (laughs) didn't stop. (laughs) Did did he succeed on that? (laughs) Well, he was always a champion of lost causes. (laughs) Fascinating, isn't it? Can I read you the little obituary he wrote for himself? Because that fills it up. So 12 years before he died, he wrote this. Here rests at last a man whose best was done because he could not rest. His wish to work, his will to serve, were things from which he could not swerve. Till death came by with gentle hand and said, sleep now and understand. That's the way the man wanted to be remembered. 
Well, on that note, I think it's time for the quick-fire questions. We've, we've uh, we got to that stage in our journey. I'm sure Ronzi himself would relish this opportunity, but I'm sure you will too, Steve. So, can you describe your perfect Lake District day? Oh, I just like walking and rambling and not knowing where I'm going, so that would be my perfect... Not walking too far, you know, an hour or two. Fine. Uh, what was your first Lakeland memory? Oh, as a teenager, I cycled up here, and I can still remember cycling over the Hard Knock Pass, refusing to get off my bike as I went up. Have you got a favourite Lakeland fell? I like the Northern Fells, partly because they're just near home, partly because they're largely empty, and I suppose Carrick Fell. I spent a year or so walking up Carrick Fell, looking for where Wilkie Collins stumbled and broke his ankle. So it became a favourite in that process. Well, two episodes ago, we had a a guest who chose that fell too, Julia Aglinby. Have you a Cumbrian hero or heroine, dead or alive? Well, I like George Smith and I like Joseph Ralph, but only because I've got to know them better than perhaps anyone else. Joseph Ralph was probably the first person to self-consciously write in dialect in English. And he did it as a priest living amongst the peasants in Sebram. And he gave those peasants a very distinctive, strong voice that said their language, their native language was something to celebrate. And so he's special. And then my other hero is George Smith, who was the first person to really write extensive descriptions of the Lake District landscape. He came up here to the wad mines in Borrowdale and so on, and barely anyone knows about him because all his writings were plagiarised and reproduced by other people. They were written anonymously in the 1740s, 1750s in the Gentleman's Magazine. And he's one of the great gaps in Cumbrian history, and he should be celebrated far more than he is. Well, I'm pleased you've drawn our attention to him because he's somebody we probably will come back to right, on well. Country Stride. Um, Red squirrel or Herdwick sheep? I can't stand either of them, so I'm not sentimental. No squirrel nutkin for me. <laughs> Absolutely. So if I was to throw a curveball and say Wainwright or Wordsworth? Uh, there's no argument. I, I find Wainwright, it's a wonderful achievement, but it's naive and it's tedious. The detail, the obsession with just precise description and just the vague enthusiasms yeah. is not for me. I'd like somebody that was richer in his involvement. Quite. Huge respect for the man, but he is not the profound artist that many would think him. Have you a favourite Cumbrian author? Yes, yeah, I'd say Norman Nicholson. And I, I want to say that because I think his Lakers is one of the most important books written on Cumbria in the 20th century. And it's important because he initiated a whole area of aesthetic study, of studying the way people's sensibilities and attitudes changed to landscape. And he did it as an asthmatic man tucked away um, in down, down in Millham, struggling to get his information together from the county libraries. But he researched the whole way how, over a century or more, different people wrote about the Lake District and how, in a very nuanced way, that attitude changed to a different kind of understanding. And I think it was a very profound, very important piece of work and not one that people fully appreciate today. Yeah. If you were Prime Minister for just one day, what one thing would you do to sustain the landscapes of Cumbria? I'd want people 
to be far more interested and far more involved in the whole wider landscape of the county. Living in Wigton and working in Carlisle, I'm aware of being at the centre of the most fabulous range of countryside and most of it is unappreciated. The Solway Plain is one of the most fantastic, interesting, fascinating, atmospheric areas of landscape in the country. No one goes there. Liddlesdale is a fascinating place with deep history and a very important history in terms of um, the roots of Romanticism. That whole southwest corner of Scotland, the Hadrian's Wall country almost speaks for itself. The Eden Valley, rich, wonderful countryside, the North Pennines, Auden loves them more than anywhere else in the world. These are exciting places. And then there's the south of the county and people don't visit them, don't appreciate them enough. So it's not a case of let's spread people from the honeypot of the central lakes. There's honeypots all around us that people ought to be going to and enjoying. Absolutely. We, we need our advocates for them. I was on the Solway Coast on Sunday and the big skies reflected in the sea. It's remarkable. Oh, it is. Uh, when the final day comes and a few friends gather, is there a location you, your friends would scatter your ashes? <laughs> it's far, far too distant for me ever well, to I've, have given it any thought. <laughs> I fully appreciate that. I, I'm in the same boat. Finally, you've got a couple of books you happen to brought with you. What, what are these? Well, you told me to, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're significant for the moment. Yes, I mean, I'm, I've written 20 or so books on what I see very much as the historic culture of the Lake District. And Rawnsley fitted in very nicely. I suddenly heard it's his centenary this year and we needed a biography. But his writings need to be revived. And so I've compiled two books with long introductions about his life that celebrate his writing. One looks at a people landscape, that is his writings on the wider Lake District, and the other, a canon in Keswick, looks very much at what he had to say about the local and immediate area. Both, I think, I can say, are fascinating because Rawnsley himself is a fascinating man. Absolutely, and I have to say how thrilled we have been to have your company. Thank you for giving your time today. It's been a magical day, and thank goodness it hasn't rained. Thank you for arranging that then. <laughs> Well, journey's end and we've gone full circle, Mark. We're back where we started this morning. The weather, if anything, has improved. We've got one of the Derwent Water launches passing in front of us now. Plenty of people out enjoying it. Not quite the tourist onslaught that we've had in the past few weeks. It's quietened down a little bit. And it's gentle ramble through history, Mark, and what a man. Oh, what a man. I mean, he's a beacon from the past. <laughs> Talking about beacons, mm, I have that yes. vivid memory of being on Skidder and all those lights all around. Um, but he, his influence and, and his energy and all the campaigns that he was a very vocal spokesman for, they all resonated then and carry through to mm. this present day. And we must never forget the power of good commitment to the people of which this mm. man evokes he was amazing right so our usual housekeeping this is episode 37 crikey 
There are 36 previous episodes at www.countrystride.co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook. At Countrystride1. You can contact us at any time. If you've got anything you'd like to share with us or indeed any requests for a walk that you would like to follow us on, then please do get in touch. So from the tip of Friars Crag here and the shores of Derwent Water, the weather turning very slightly autumnal now. We're saying goodbye for now and we look forward to joining you for the next Country Stride. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.